Welcome to Series 2 of Assembly Point, a monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. Following a successful first series, Assembly Point provides a collective space in which industry leaders can explore the most pressing issues in fire safety and share expert information and advice. Please be aware that the views expressed by guests in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the FPA. We hope you enjoy this episode of Assembly Point. Hello and welcome to the Fire Protection Association's Assembly Podcast. I'm Jonathan O'Neill, Managing Director at the FPA, and today I'm joined by Salish Mehta, Head of Red Lion Chambers Fire Law Team. Salish, thanks for taking the time to join me today. I appreciate how busy the schedule of a barrister must be. Our FBA and Risk Authority members will be familiar with you thanks to your weighing up the law column in our Fire Risk Management Journal. And some of our listeners may have been in the audience for your talk in the FBA's Infozone Theatre at FireX in May on the autonomy of prosecution. It's great to have you with us for this podcast. If I can kick off, I'm going back to, to, to the articles you write in the journal. In February of this year, you wrote an article highlighting that many buildings were non-compliant with fire safety legislation. So do you think that the changes introduced by the government since the Grenfell disaster will make it easy for regulators to identify unsafe buildings and for this to result in an increase in prosecutions? So the, the background is that there was a, a level of urgency in this because the government's own estimates were that there were about a million people or thereabouts uh, who were in high-rise buildings and were in potential danger. So that's the, the, the incentive, uh, obviously Grenfell uh, and the Grenfell inquiry being the, the, the key initiator of, of all of this. So that's the, the, the rationale for why uh, government was keen on doing something. And so combination of the building safety programme that, that uh, was started not long after Grenfell, the Fire Safety Act that came into operation uh, just a few months ago, and the Building Safety Act, it's now uh, received royal assent. combination of those, as well as Dame Hackett's inquiry, as well as the phase one of Grenfell Report, when you combine all of those together, then you've got the makings of something that's going to be a safer future for residents, particularly in high-rise flats and across the industry. So to that extent, I'm very pleased that there seems to be action taking place uh, and fairly concerted action, joined up action. As far as whether there will be more prosecutions, uh, that is, in my view, almost inevitable. There has been light-touch regulation, I suspect we'll be discussing that in due course. Uh, And I think the pendulum is swinging back in favour of less than light touch regulation. So the process that was started in the 80s, I think, has reached uh, its full potential uh, in, in a way that harmed the public. And now some of that's being ploughed back by this uh, uh, suite of legislation and government action. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I, obviously, in the past, you, you've, you've referenced underfunded regulators and overstretched local authorities. Are you reassured that the new regime under Michael Gove is appropriately resourced? I, I'm never uh, happy about when, uh, whether central or local government uh, suggests that there is money uh, available. So already Mr Gove, Minister for Leveling Up, uh, some joke that it's really Minister for Leveling Down, uh, has uh, assisted uh, one of his first comments, and I've got a lot of time for, 
for Gove. Uh, one of his first comments was that it's horrendously unfair that tenants of buildings should be required by the owners uh, to pay for the, the redoing of cladding, replacement of cladding. And he put up some money, it was very limited. So uh, what he said has been in the right direction. Uh, given what's happening in government at the moment, uh, given the instability within uh, the heart of government uh, in terms of leadership and also what's happening economically with the country, uh, I would be less than optimistic about how much money there is available uh, to ensure that all of the, the joined up thinking on implementing uh, these acts and the, the secondary legislation that's going to follow the two new acts will actually uh, achieve the desired aim without the level of funding that's needed. So, so I'm a little pessimistic. Uh, but then, uh, I'm always pessimistic, but I, I tend, uh, Jonathan, to be proved right in the long run when it comes to underestimating government's uh, words uh, being matched with, uh, with, with uh, financial backing. Well, of course, the whole industry at the moment is facing you know, a real issue as, as far as capacity is concerned, particularly with experienced people. So one would assume that the, uh, the regulators are having the same difficulties in recruiting um, and local authority, local authority salaries to keep pace with what's happening in the private sector now are going to have to go some. So I, I would share your pessimism, sadly. Okay, so moving on for that, you know, obviously we've got a government that, 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 it, that is, is moving forward. But in recent months, we have seen the government drop recommendations from the Hackett report um, and, and actually from, 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 the, uh, from the public inquiry. From the Hackett report, we lost the building safety manager. Do you think that cha this change will cause confusion or blurring of lines? And do you think this in turn will lead to problems with prosecuting going forwards? Um, to deal with your, your first point, it was certainly to, to many commentators disappointing that what in the Hackett um, report and also in the bill was one of the central tenets of the change in thinking that there should be, according to the bill and Hackett, someone, a named individual, uh, who everyone in a, a high-rise block of flats would know, would have access to, who would be the go-to person when it comes to fire safety. Uh, that was the, the purpose uh, of the, the relevant sections in the bill that have come out, and uh, that was one of the, uh, the many recommendations in Hackett. So it is disappointing. The rationale for the removal of that office appears to be financial, in the sense that it was likely so the minister thought that tenants would have to foot the bill for such an individual and the industry the recruitment industry in particular was suggesting that the cost of each one of these people would be somewhere between 60 and 90 thousand pounds and therefore uh, tenants uh, in high-rise blocks of flats most of whom uh, are having difficulty uh, even meeting their service charges which are likely to be increasing in the future uh, won't uh, be able to stomach uh, the, the extra increase from this person. So that was the rationale and uh, the feeling was that there are other people uh, who already partly uh, in a sort of jigsaw puzzle way do some of the work already that the new person, the new manager was going to do. So those functions will devolve uh, to different people. Uh, 
for example, the management company for a block of flats. So that, that's not great news, that the ideal would have been to have uh, that implemented uh, as it was in the bill and to find some way to pay for it other than uh, to lumber uh, the tenants with it, but that's not been done. Uh, and so an easier route appears to be found. Uh, will that affect uh, the ability to prosecute? I suspect it will in the sense that uh, my worry is that uh, the duties of this manager that now no longer exist in statute uh, may fall between a number of stools and that everyone uh, who, uh, on whose shoulders the burden might fall will do their best to offload it to someone else. And so it will potentially make it more difficult to prosecute, but more worryingly, it may make uh, a whole building uh, across uh, the industry less safe than it was intended uh, by Hackett and by the, the drafters of the legislation. Uh, it's exceptionally worrying. I completely share your views. Uh, during the Grenville inquiry, of course, we've seen ministers and officials under scrutiny for their failure to react on the recommendations contained in Rule 43 letters, yeah. particularly the one that was written after the Lacanal inquest. I'll be really interested in your views on coroner's recommendations in general and whether we're likely to see them being taken more seriously in government now that we've, that we've heard some of the evidence of Grenfell. Yeah. Um, much depends, unfortunately, on the, the political temperature for these things. Uh, there have been coroner's recommendations that, uh, uh, that ministers uh, have taken hold of and run with uh, and made sure that, for example, a particular product or, or safety feature uh, of a series of products that, that a coroner has said is, is dangerous is acted upon very quickly. Uh, the difficulty here, of course, is that we have um, a, a number of warning signs uh, that were lit pretty brightly for all to see. So the Lacknell House recommendations were absolutely clear. Nothing uh, of great significance seems to have been done. Uh, and therefore, it seems certainly to a cynic uh, looking at the industry that unless there is a major disaster uh, of the size of Grenfell, sadly, uh, that there doesn't seem to be any political incentive to do anything. Uh, the greater worry is that even when there is uh, to, to set up an inquiry, uh, and often the setting up of an inquiry is itself a political act to try to assuage public uh, feelings, uh, and, and that certainly had a part to play in the Grenfell inquiry. The worry is that, uh, particularly with long inquiries, for example, the Bloody Sunday inquiry lasted uh, many, many years, uh, and nothing seems to have come uh, out of it. Uh, the worry is that the recommendations uh, from the Grenfell inquiry uh, will, even though they'll be trumpeted um, as things that government will want to do, uh, particularly if there's no money in the coffers, uh, the goodwill may evaporate quickly. Uh, but, uh, and also if there's no public pressure uh, put on ministers to deliver. And clearly, you know, the further we get away from, 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 from the tragedy itself, the, the easier it seems to be. For ministers to uh, to shirk responsibility or, or or point the fingers at others, which 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 again worries me enormously. I mean, I, I've been involved in commentating and actually been involved in, in one or two inquiries. And uh, uh, for example, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. Um, uh, unless there's an audit and then someone holds 
Parliament to account at the end of each year after auditing that report. Nothing much seems to get done. Uh, the real fear is that that might happen to Grenfell and really that's an incentive for the industry uh, and those that have been affected uh, to make sure that every aspect of phase one and phase two in particular that, that is re um, reported back is audited and on a yearly basis accounted for. Uh, it, well, it'll be interesting to see what recommendations the, uh, the inquiry eventually come out with and exactly what the government does with them. So, but from what we've witnessed from the inquiry, do, do you expect prosecutions to follow? Do you think those who spare responsibility for the tragedy will actually be held to account? And in, if so, in what areas of law do you think the prosecutions will be successful? Yeah. One can get a feel from uh, the breadth and depth of uh, the inquiry so far. Uh, what a complex web of individuals, companies, liabilities and factual matrix it is. Uh, so one can understand the difficulty for any prosecutor. Uh, as far as I'm aware, a team of prosecutors has been instructed. Uh, of course, the, the investigation uh, by the Metropolitan Police has been active. It's not clear whether the investigators and the, the prosecution team are waiting for the end uh, of the, the Grenfell inquiry. In principle, there's no need to do so. Uh, but at the very least, uh, what, what uh, the investigative team will be doing is sifting through uh, millions and millions of documents. I suspect that already, uh, or I'd be surprised uh, if uh, this wasn't done, that there must be levels or tiers of culpability that a prosecuting team will already have identified. And so uh, the local authority would be one of the, uh, the, the, the potential defendants, as well as one or two of the local politicians that might have been directly involved in decision making. The, the cladding firms and a number of, of, of firms were involved uh, in relation to the cladding of Grenfell uh, may well be, and the directors of those firms may well be uh, people of interest uh, in the first and the highest tier. Um, and so I imagine that there'll be a percolation of, uh, in terms of importance uh, or focus for the prosecuting team, but I'd be surprised if they haven't got a good way into the decision-making process as to whether to prosecute and whom. And so the anticipation amongst lawyers such as myself is that there will be prosecutions, that they'll be done in phases, uh, and that the first phase uh, will be the, the, the most important and the biggest, but there will be a, a trickling uh, down effect of a number of other companies and individuals after that. Uh, as far as potential offences are concerned, uh, of course, gross negligence, manslaughter uh, would be uh, one of the, the, the key offences that the, uh, the families of the deceased of Grenfell would want the prosecuting team to look at. But it is uh, horrendously difficult uh, to prosecute under that particular legislation, partly because, and you may think rightly, uh, the level of uh, knowledge and mental element required to prosecute successful at that level uh, is, is a pretty high hurdle. There will, of course, also be consideration of uh, the fire safety order breaches and health and safety act breaches. So I, uh, I'm imagining that there will be a mixture uh, of straight crime, so to speak, uh, gross negligence, man, manslaughter and the like, as well as regulatory crime that will be on uh, indictments that the prosecutors are looking at. And given the, uh, the, the, the backlog that we've currently got in the courts, the delays we've seen with the Grenfell inquiry, 
what sort of time frames would you expect? Are we, are we talking about five years from now or, or for it to all to be complete? It's difficult to, to predict. Uh, the pressure will be on the prosecuting team, I imagine. Uh, for, uh, and that pressure will become greater and greater uh, as we get to the end of phase two of the Grenfell inquiry. My best guess would be that they should be thinking about indictments in the next 18 months or so. And then once the case uh, is in court, uh, it will be slowed down, mainly because of the disclosure process. The defendants rightly will want uh, disclosure of uh, many, many uh, hundreds of thousands of documents. And so uh, I would be surprised if there's a trial uh, within uh, three, sites, three years of today. Depressing, really, considering you know well, it's such you know the, the, the largest loss of life uh, you know we've had in in the UK in fire since since the Second World War. Tragedies that we've had in the past, which we said we we learnt from and we uh, and never would never be repeated, and and, and here we are again. I, I'm particularly sad, and I, I was one of the uh, the first lawyers that attended uh, near the site uh, on on day two or the first daylight day. Um, a, a small group of us did, and we uh, decided that we would not uh, ourselves benefit from any of the, the, the legal action ourselves, but we were there meeting families uh, and the survivors as well. And so uh, the, the, there's a, a strong level of feeling amongst those people, some of whom I've met, uh, that there should really be uh, a prosecution uh, as, as soon as possible. Uh, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Well, Salish, we've, we've run out of time. Uh, thanks very much for your time today. It's been great to get your thoughts on the legislative uh, implications. And, and, and thanks again. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. For the second today, uh, part of today's podcast, I'd like to welcome Jill Koenig, Transformation Director of Arup and former Re uh, Grenfell Tower resident. Jill, thanks for taking the time for uh, joining me today. I'm sure the majority of our listeners will be familiar with you, given your significant campaigning following the Grenfell Tower tragedy, as well as your book, your blog and your podcast. I'm really pleased you could be with us today. Thank you. Jill, if I can start with uh, the first question. In July 2009, six people died in the Lackanall House fire. In June 2017, as if we need reminding, 72 people died in the Grenfell Tower fire. Do you think we've finally woken up and learnt the lessons from this, this, these disasters, or will we still fail to heed to the warnings? Well, it's quite poignant um, asking or reflecting on that because we're recording this just after the fifth anniversary um, of, of the Grenfell. And I think if you listen to residents' views, there hasn't been sufficient change over the last five years. And in fact, a lot of people from industry I know agree with that. So firstly, as a straight direct answer, I think no. But I think um, if I offer a bit of nuance to that, there has been piecemeal change. So we are focused on things like fire doors. I think that the, certainly the um, fire and rescue service has changed significantly in terms of how it responds to high-rise residential fires and obviously is more conscious of cladding. But I'm not sure that we think distinctly about low probability, high consequence events and managing, you know, for me, if we were to learn from Grenfell, we would be thinking about that kind of risk more distinctly, 
which requires a shift from thinking about piecemeal solutions such as fire doors or cavity barriers to a much more systemic conversation around safety and risk and how um, all parts of the system speak with one another and interact with people. And I don't think we're doing that yet. You focus on, on the ground floor residents, and I think it's absolutely vital that, that, that they still remain centre stage here, because if they don't feel there's been the change, how do you think we actually we, we can instill the, 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 the safety culture that we all know that needs to be in these buildings so that the, the residents don't actually feel worried every time they go to, to, to bed at night? Well, I wonder, um, it, it's interesting when you say that because I'm not sure how we assess or measure change. So for me, I will be happy when the Grenfell survivors and bereaved, the Lacanal survivors and bereaved, and the people called up in the building safety crisis say things have changed. But I don't think that's where we look to measure. And I think that's problematic. So I think as an industry, we look inside ourselves to look at have things changed. So we'll measure, I'm, I mean, I keep parking on about vitals. That's just a good example. But even if we look at those things, it looks like I, there was a recent report that said, I can't remember, 80% or something of fire doors are not compliant. But I think we need to question how we measure success. And I think we need to challenge ourselves as an industry in terms of whose voices pass judgment on whether we've changed or not. And I would give that voice to people that have gone through the tragedies. It's interesting you, 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 you say how the industry measure, but also there's an issue about govern, government and governance. And we've seen from the, the outcomes of the Grenfell inquiry, there were systemic failures in, in governance. What do you think it will need to actually to, uh, to have that systemic change that's required? Well, that's a huge question, firstly. <laughs> so how long have we got? <laughs> but um, I, my personal view is I don't think government will drive the change that's needed in industry. And I think it's problematic thinking that they would. And I'm, I'm not pointing fingers at this particular government. I, there's a lot I could say about that, but I won't. Governments in and of themselves are problematic as the world becomes increasingly complex. There's issues that, you, you know, with lack of accountability, very, very complex delivery mechanisms, regulations themselves are never going to produce safe outcomes. So I would go, well, how is industry? Can we create systemic change versus, well, let's wait for government. Governments around the world are flawed. And as the, wor the world becomes increasingly complex, that's more problematic. So I don't know if that specifically answered the questions, but that's my reflections on that. No, and I accept that, but surely government do have a role here. I mean, you know, it, it's five years since Grenfell, 17 years since we've had a major building regulations review in this country. We've seen a major change in the way that the materials that are used within the building process we see more combustible materials entering the building process. Do you think the government has a responsibility there to, as far as building regulations is concerned? Of course the government has a responsibility, but if the government's not going to fulfil on its responsibility, then industry has a responsibility to build safe buildings and to justify putting things that are knowingly unsafe on buildings with the reasoning that it 
complies with some outdated or bad regulation is just in my view immoral i'm with you all the way you know and again leading on to my next question really it's taken five years for us to start to see the process of change we've got the building safety act now which is start passed into law in april but from what you're saying you don't think that regulation is enough to prevent a tragic fire it requires cultural change through the industry and behavioural change through the industry as well. Yeah, I think that the, there's this lack of understanding about the vulnerabilities of regulation, if I put it that way. So regulations will never, ever guarantee safe outcomes. They're reactive by nature. And actually, they can create a false a compliance mindset, can create a false sense of security and stop people from looking for vulnerabilities, particularly to low probability, high consequence events. So actually coming from a compliance mindset is quite dangerous and absolutely will not prevent another catastrophic event. So in my view, compliance is kind of, yes, we have to ensure that we comply. We also have to be raising and working with government to change regulations that are unclear or not good. And we all know about approved document B and the failures um, over that for a number of years, starting with Lacanol. But beyond that, we have to be asking ourselves, are these buildings safe? And what are the weak signals that all, all strong signals that all might not be well? Um, so I think that's critical. And if I could add another point to that is what's critical to do that is to include all voices. So you can't have siloed expertise making those judgments. You need to be looking at the interface of buildings with society, with residents, with the public, and the tacit expertise of those voices needs to be seen as really critical. And I don't think that's changed in the last five years. So would you see us moving to, or would you see a more effective model being something like the NFPA model, which has consensus I don't, I'm afraid I don't know the NFPA model in enough detail to be able to respond, to, to respond to that. But certainly anything that's consensual, collaborative, but that must include the voice of the residents or the users of buildings. And, and going back to the residents' voice, which was, which was so important in Dame Judith Hackett's initial uh, findings of, the, of some of the failures that we had uh, post-Grenfell, uh, do, do you think the residents' voice, you know, is, is now strong enough and being loudly enough heard and being take, enough is being taken into account? No. Um, I, I think residents' voices are louder and perhaps have more of a forum, if that makes sense. And I think that's both because residents have changed and are unwilling to accept things that in the past they might not have. I think the media listens more to residents' voice, so there's more public... Um, pressure to change. The thing, again, that I, I think is not understood and that I don't see is tapping the knowledge of residents. So before Grenfell, the group that said all was not well, and in Eddie Defan and Francis O'Connor's blog, predict, well, Edward said didn't predict, but said a catastrophic failure was likely, was residents. So I know industry bodies were also, and, and, and people with industry were also raising concerns around the use of certain materials on buildings, but residents were very, very loudly going, all is not well in Grenfell. And I think there's still a failure to acknowledge the importance of that knowledge and expertise and seeing it at the same level or stature as technical expertise. So while I think residents have more voice, 
I don't think their expertise is valued in the same way that we perhaps value a engineering degree or, or something like that. So, and I, I think that needs to change. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, when the conclusions of, uh, of Dame Judith Hackett were actually some, it was the profession itself that actually failed. And if we start to see residents just as, as noisy campaign and lobbying groups, then, it, then you're never going to embrace them as, 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 as fully engaged stakeholders. And I would also actually say that um, when, when you're talking about systemic change, it's actually the, a, a lot of times where that lives in, is in your loudest um, critics. And, and when you silence your loudest critics, there's learning available to you that, that you're not gaining. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure we've got... Uh... A government that's totally in listening mode at the moment, but I, 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 I could be could be wrong. But then I go, I, but that's when I go. Well, if governance, if government is not going to listen, then what is industry going to do? So hiding behind government is not doing what it needs to do is not an excuse. I think I think I think one or two of us in the industry have come to that conclusion. In fact, you know, we we, we are beginning to meet. Um, as, as groups within the industry to try and, uh, and, and push the agenda forward because clearly there's a lack of, of, of will by ministers but a lack of expertise within the department to actually be able to assist and, 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 to, and to adapt building methods and regulations to, or, or building codes to modern, modern building methods. And, and there's, there's something, um, I mean, going back to your point about systemic change is part of it. Is so, sometimes when I kind of think about where we are is there's this command and control, bureaucratic, linear mindset, which I think a lot of government operates from, on top of this massively complex, ambiguous, VUCA, if you want to call it, so volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. And that's really where the clash is. And we have to develop our ability to lead in complex systems, which is very different from a command and control style of leadership. I think we're kind of caught in the, in the um, I don't know what the right words, the, the transition, if that makes sense. Yeah. Government is really very far behind. And I think the fire industry is actually also quite far behind, but I think is probably a bit more forward than government in terms of, of, of moving to different ways of thinking and leading. Well, one of the big problems within the fire industry and having been involved with it for, for 25 years is, is a lack of coordination. You, 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 you can ask the question to 10 different people and get 10 different answers and, that, and that's, that, that, that's never going to be an ideal scenario, for, particularly for somebody for a non-expert looking in. So yeah. I have some sympathy with ministers in that respect. Yes. One of the things, um, do you know when we're talking about government, one of the things that drives me insane is there's not one dashboard showing progress with remediation of existing buildings. Do you know, I mean, I sometimes I go, well, I'm writing an article or something, so I need to dig into, but I have to, it takes me half a day to find out updated statistics of where we are, which for me is not an indicator of, of somebody that wants to be held to account for progress. Well, you would expect when large amounts of government money are being spent, you would expect to actually have some idea of what success looks like. And so the KPIs must exist somewhere within the department, one would assume. But there just seemed to be, a, to me anyway, a lack of coordination across government on fire. 
you know, we've got a different policy within the Department for Education, we've got a different policy within the Home Office, and although the Home Office and, and, and Department for Leveling Up share the same building, they don't seem to talk to one another. Which is one of the known weaknesses of governance, is, you know, you have siloed departments, whereas safety should really be embedded across all of them, it's not. So it is entirely problematic, which again goes back to, I think there's much more of a burden on industry to do the right thing and build safe buildings. Well, we, have, we seem to have a czar for everything else that, that, that's important. Probably perhaps a safety czar wouldn't be a bad way yeah. forward. So if a catastrophe like Grenfell Tower was not a catalyst for change, how do you think we ensure that fire safety is high enough on the agenda to avoid, as you've said, low probability, high consequence events going forward? Well, the, the answer to that is I don't know. I still find it unbelievable that 72 deaths in 2017 in the richest borough in one of the richest cities in the world did not lead to fundamental change. Um, so the short answer is I don't know. And the call to action is very bold leadership. And do you think that's, from what you've said, you think that bold leadership now needs to come from the industry rather Absolutely. than... Absolutely. I mean, we have demonstrated over five years it's not going to come from government. For sure. And do you think the construction industry, aside from the fire industry, is in the mood to actually take this mantle on and actually push the agenda forward? Again, no. And I think the more, um, the, the, the more I discover and learn about the construction industry, this is a decades long inability to change or innovate. So doing what, we, what we've always done is not going to do it. It needs very massive, radical disruption, not incremental change. I've had report after report for decades that has made no significant systemic difference to the industry. So... No, well, I would, I would, you know, having, again, having been involved with the fire industry for many, many years, I've, I've seen many reports that have been done, with, you know, with the best will and some really good direction of travel identified, and uh, they sit on a shelf and gather dust. Exactly. And then some other disaster happens, and then another report gets written that raises the same issues. So I think there's, there's something um, quite radical needed in terms of, of leadership from industry. Jill, we're sort of coming to the end of our time now. I mean, just before we close, and it would be really nice to close on an optimistic note. I mean, are you seeing some sort of green shoots that, are, that you think will, will make some, some sensible improvement going forward? Well, you invited me on the podcast, so that's a green shoot. So I do personally, personally, I, I, I certainly within the fire industry, I'm invited into more conversations and I think I can be quite disruptive. So I think there is um, signs of different conversations happening. Um, and I use that as an indicator more broadly of me being invited into certain conversations. So I think there are some different conversations happening. I think um, ju just to dive straight into the issue, the um, fire industry has a big role to play with how peeps gets responded to. And I, I think that's kind of a moral ethical conversation and and it's great to see some organizations and people actually standing up for something and i'm not saying peeps is the solution i think it's about ensuring kind of equality of egress so ensuring people can get out of building safety and that the most vulnerable are not disadvantaged in that 
So I do think there's green shoots in terms of the more, um, if I say gnarly, difficult issues are being publicly spoken about and there are organizations that are taking a stand for something. That, that I think is very hopeful. Yeah, the, the, the PEEPs issue um, and the decision by the government completely defies me. I, 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 I cannot quite work out how on earth that they would have come to that decision with the evidence that was, that was presented to them. And when you've got a public inquiry that makes such a firm recommendation to ignore it as a government. In the words of, sort of if you ever watch the Yes Minister programme, it's, a, it's a, a courageous decision by the minister. But I also do, you know, to go back to is you can go ahead with peeps, even if government doesn't mandate it. Absolutely. And I'm sure that the more progressive landlords will go ahead with peeps. And I hope that we start to see industry guidance emerging, which has got a strong recommendation yeah. for peeps. And we start to see, you know, at some point in the future, who knows, you could get that guidance adopted by the new building safety regulator as an approved code of practice and that becomes uh, and it becomes the norm exactly and i again i just would reiterate i'm not i'm not i i don't know that the solution is peeps it's what's the solution that gets people out of buildings as i said at quality of egress because i i'm, I'm maybe there's an issue with the adoption or there's problems with the implementation I'm, i don't want to argue against those could be issues but let's not shy away from how do we ensure a quality of egress and not be willing to work on projects or in buildings where that's not a, a conversation. And I mean, for me also on hope, you know, is we're so brilliant, you know, I'm not a technical person and I'm so in awe of um, engineering and all of these amazing technical solutions. And it just saddens me when those are not used to higher purpose, um, like ensuring a quality of egress. So I just think we should stop being in the weeds about arguing why it's not possible and figure out how it is possible. Absolutely. No, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. On that note, I, we, we've, we've, got, we've got to finish. We've run out of time. But thank you very much for your time today. It's been, it's been illuminating to hear your thoughts, particularly uh, you know, as, uh, as a former Grenfell Tower resident. And I think we, we, we need to learn an awful lot about how we actually integrate residents' voice more uh, more proactively in the future uh, and not see them as as, as 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 a noisy group on the side that are just trying to make trying just trying to make a fuss and i th I, th I do fear that's the way that, that it's pursued at the moment yeah and remember that's how the grenfell residents were related to the rebel residents you know so where are we doing that now but thank you so much for inviting me on and no, and no problem at all thank you for listening to the fpa's assembly point podcast we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. To avoid missing out on future episodes, hit the subscribe button. To listen to previous episodes of Assembly Point, or for more guidance and resources on reducing the risks of fire, please visit thefpa.co.uk.